fundamentally, the greatest way to change is to take action. Like you can sit here, listen to me, run my mouth, read a book, but you have to take action. You have to go into those spaces of the suck. You have to go to war with yourself. Put yourself in those spaces where one party you wants to quit, wants to die even, and then the other wants to fight. When you put yourself in those spaces, that's when you will discover something new. All right, we're back, ladies and gentlemen, for another episode of Live Your Truth Now. So excited to have you guys here. I'm Mike. I'm Katie. And we have a special guest today. And not only a special guest, my brother from another mother, my boy Akshay Nanavati, who is not only a Marine Corps veteran, Semper Fi Akshay, but he's the author of Fearvana. He's one of the most extreme dudes I know. And I don't mean that in like a way where he's just doing crazy stuff all the time. Well, that's actually not true. You are doing crazy stuff all the time. But actually to me is extreme in the sense of like his ability to challenge and push himself to new places, new boundaries, especially through the power of the human spirit. I got to know actually last year in 2020. He's a remarkable human being, and I couldn't think of a better guest to join us for this episode, specifically because we're going to be talking about in the theme of just narratives and storytelling and helping everybody here really write their ultimate story. Akshay, to me, embodies seeking discomfort, I guess you could say, and and choosing uh, to live life almost to the brink of just extreme euphoria. I would say instead of fearvana, it's nirvana, but you're going to go through that whole term of what that means. So Akshay, my friend, my brother, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, brother. Great to be here, man. Yeah, absolutely. And so in order for this show to really go the way that I'm hoping it will, and I know it's going to be a great conversation, I'm actually, because I know you pretty damn well. And so we've, we talk almost, I'd probably say we probably talk almost every day. Uh, I'm actually going to let Katie, who is a new friend of yours, Katie's going to kick off this interview and just jump right in with her questions. Cause first of all, she's crazy curious. And two, she also has pre-recorded questions that she had written down before. She's like, I listened to all this stuff. <laughs> and he's so, <laughs> he's so fascinating. He's so great. Like I have so many questions I want to ask him. I was like, then you should lead off. So with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, Katie D'Andrea, fire away. Thanks Mike for that introduction. That was absolutely profound and much better than I did in our take one. So thank you for that. <laughs> it takes practice. It takes practice. Good thing I'm working with a professional here, folks. Actually, it's such a pleasure to meet you. I, as Mike said, I stalked you on Instagram. I watched a bunch of your videos. I listened to a bunch of your podcasts. And so where I'd like to start is your, well, thank you for, first of all, thank you for your service to both of you. I work with military veterans and I don't think it should ever go without being said for your absolute contribution to this country. And so I would love to start with that. So you're a Marine Corps veteran, obviously not for the faint of heart. I read that you went through basic training with a sprained ankle, not for the faint of heart. You had a blood disease that most people said that you should probably drop out of basic training due to that condition, Um, but you persevered. And so I'm curious to see how did serving in the Marine Corps shape your identity? It was a huge part of who I am today and and really defined everything about who what shaped me today. It was a transformational point in my life because before the Marines, I mean, so I was born like good family, great parents, loving parents, did not know suffering, did not know pain. My parents, like as Indian parents, they're very overprotective. So I was, you know, sheltered, lived a comfortable life. I mean, they weren't extremely wealthy when I was born, but whatever struggles like they might have gone through, I did not experience. And so I didn't know any pain or suffering. And the Marines was when I started to discover the beauty of that because obviously boot camp was hard. And even right before joining, I had actually gotten very heavily into drugs and alcohol. When I had moved to Austin, Texas, I had moved from India, from Bombay to Bangalore to Singapore to Austin. And because I moved around a lot, I was very unsure of myself. No idea who I wanted to be, lack of confidence. And as, as a result of moving around a lot, I was very adaptable, but I was also very impressionable. So I got into a group, and again, I take responsibility for my actions. I don't blame anybody else, but as a young, impressionable person, you kind of are at the effect of your environment to a large deal. So I got into a group of friends, and I was the guy who pushed the line with drugs, pushed the line with alcohol. You know, me and one other friend were the first two in our group to start going into harder drugs, and he's no longer alive today. He OD'd. So I lost two friends to that path and was heading down that path myself. Like the the kind of things that I did back then, sometimes I'm... 
I'm grateful that I made it out because I did a lot of stupid things back then. And the Marines was the shifting point in every way. It started to teach me the gift in suffering, the gift in adversity, and to start seeking out pain as a vehicle for bliss, for enlightenment, for transformation, for transcendence. And uh, that shaped everything about who I am today. It was It was like the trigger that changed everything about the core of how I define who Akshay is and, and what I stand for. Mm, damn, that's, there's so much to dig into right there. But the first thing I want to ask you about is what is the difference between suffering and pain? You know, I've heard people say that distinction, that sort of pain is, um, pain happens, but suffering is optional. Ultimately, in my take on it, to some degree, it's semantics. Like you can call it whatever you want. I use the word suffering extensively. If you've heard me on uh, shows you've heard, I used it extensively. And the reason I do is because Suffering, the word itself conjures up greater pain, greater intensity than, let's say, if I say something is difficult, something is challenging, something is painful. Suffering, just the word, the relationship we generally have with it, it feels far more painful. It feels far worse in terms of the degree of struggle than all those other words. And that's why I use it, because when you develop a, pos a positive relationship to suffering, when you learn to suffer well, as I like to say, to smile in the face of that suffering— then pain, then challenge, then difficulty, then struggle, all those things become much easier. And words have power. How we use words can shape our emotional state. They can shape our relationship to the world. And that's why the, the, the reason I use it so often is to, for myself, I've at this point, I've developed a very positive relationship to suffering. Like when I hear the word, I don't think of it as something negative. Most people do, right? They don't hear that word and think of it as something beautiful, as something positive. And what I want to help people do is reframe their relationship to that word. That's why I use it. So ultimately, you can call it whatever you want. But I think suffering is the, if that, if that word means the greatest degree of pain, fall in love with that. Fall in love with the greatest degree of pain you can possibly fall in love with. And that's the vehicle to living a more blissful life. Like that's the most important skill to master, to suffer well. Got it. That's <laughs> that's it. No more episode. No more episode. That's it. We're done. Mic drop. <laughs> and so what has falling in love with that pain, that suffering yielded you? Like, what is that boundary that you constantly seek to push? Because it sounds like you have a history of boundary pushing. So what, what is it that you're seeking? Whether you were not conscious about it or it seems like now you are. Now I very much am. But when I first kind of started down this path, I wasn't. Like when after joining the Marines, I started to look for other ways to challenge myself, to confront my fears. And by the way, for the record, like before joining the Marines, I was terrified of everything. I was terrified of roller coasters, terrified of like Ferris wheels, which is kind of ridiculous. I was terrified of everything. So I was not born with this, you know, sort of innate desire to confront my fears. It was the exact opposite. But the Marines started to shift that tr uh, that trend and so after coming out of boot camp, I went mountain climbing, cave diving, skydiving, rock climbing, like every one of my fears, fear of heights, fear of tight spaces, fear of open water. Like I remember when I was a kid, we went snorkeling and I remember seeing just the, the edge of the water dip and I got too scared and I turned around. The nothingness of the empty ocean freaked me out. So I went and pursued every single one of those fears. Now, back then I wasn't doing it so consciously. It was more just to kind of to keep exploring that next edge because Every time you do, you're finding something new within yourself. And that discovery is is everything. I mean, like, if you live your whole life staying within everything you know, how will the adventure that is life be enjoyable? I mean, I've heard one neuroscientist say that depression is lack of novelty. Because if every day is the exact same, if you are not going into new places, you are not going to discover new things within or without. So back then, you know, I was just kind of doing it, jumping from one thing to the next to the next. And then when I came back from Iraq, I was doing it as a vehicle to distract myself from the one of the greatest fears, which I had not really confronted till somewhat recently when I spent seven days in darkness, which was the fear of stillness. So mm -hmm. sometimes when you're not fully aware and not conscious and not taking that time to reflect from the experiences, like one of my mantras now is stretch and reflect. So when I push myself, I come back and reflect on it. But back then, again, I didn't. And so when when you do that, when you don't, even the like the positive things you do, like working out, working on your business, uh, climbing mountains, all these things that I was sort of lauded for, praised for, that you people invited me to speak at, at events for, I was doing them to a certain degree, especially after Iraq, just to run away from confronting what was within. So stillness became my new struggle. And that's why I spent seven days in darkness. But now when I do it, I'm constant. The reason I keep pushing in every way, and I don't just mean physically. I, I love physical suffering because physical suffering is the one kind of suffering that taps into all elements of the human spirit. 
mind, body, and spirit. Now I can sit, meditate. It could be hard. I could work on my business. I could read new books. That's pushing my mind. But physical suffering is the only kind of suffering that will challenge every element of you. And therefore, by forcing you to go into all these spaces in mind, body, and spirit, you actually create a greater alignment within. So physical suffering is a huge part of it, but it's not the only part of it. Building a business is its own kind of suffering. Dating is its own kind of suffering. Uh, <laughs> as Mike knows, I've been telling him the fears that I have around that. Or, you know, sitting in dark rooms, navigating stillness. So looking for every new edge, because in every new edge, there is a new de- treasure. Like you have to open new doors to find new treasures. And I'm constantly looking to see what's there. You can't really know yourself unless you go into those spaces. And the idea here is, it's, it's when I go into the spaces, I'm not sort of, it's not, it's not about finding myself. Like people often say, you know, you hear that like spirituality will say to find yourself, but there is no inherent self to find. It's not, we're not born with some inherent like thing that exists within us. We have to create ourselves. Mm. And I go into these spaces to That's keep good, creating man. a new self, to keep building a new self. And every time I, I come back from a new struggle, I've built a better version of Akshay. And that process of building a new self of the evolution that occurs is in a way addictive, but it's, that's bliss. Like that's the ultimate bliss. That's the highest moment you can experience. And it's, it's, I mean, once you do it, you you can't go back, you know? Yeah. And, and actually you touched on like a couple points around this like concept of fear. And I've always been as just somebody that knows you, I've, I've asked you time and time again about just what fear is to you. I think we have like the Webster dictionary, you know, fear is like being scared. Right. And that's like the simplest mm-hmm. way to turn. I'm probably I might even be butchering that term just because I don't have a dictionary in front of me. <laughs> but I think for everybody, fear is just such there's such a broad spectrum of what fear really is. You strike me as the type of man that when you are truly afraid or truly in the state of fear, I believe that there is something intrinsic that happens within you in which you kind of use that as energy for you to push yourself to this to these new levels, as you were kind of mentioning before. So this is Mm -hmm. actually like a two part question I want to ask you. Last year showed us, uh, I think, how afraid people are in general or how much fear there is in society. And I think it wasn't just because of COVID. I think it was just because a lot of things collapsed. You watched people who had 20, 30 years of building a business or having a family or all of these things that they had spent a majority of their life crumbled in months and people became scared. What's this COVID thing? Are we ever going to get money for our small business to make it through this? Is tomorrow Mm -hmm. my last day or is the next day my last day or is today my last day? So my first question for you is, I would love for you to kind of dissect fear in society. What do you think it is that is really plaguing people in this sense of fear? Like, what do you think is really striking the hearts and minds of people when it comes to being afraid as somebody who spends, I would say, a majority of their healthy time being in fear and making them scaring the shit out of themselves, right? Doing hard things. Um, and I would just, so before I ask that second question, I would love for you to just kind of expand upon a little bit more about the the situation that I, that I had just presented to you. Yeah. You know, so at the most primal level, fear is a response to the unknown. So the brain, when you think about evolutionary speaking, our brain exists to keep us alive. It does not care about our happiness. It does not care about our well-being. It exists to keep us alive. So anytime we encounter something that is new, at a very simplistic level, our brain is saying, is this thing going to kill us or not? And therefore, we respond to the unknown to risk with fear. So it's a very normal human re- uh, response to anything unknown. So inevitably, when COVID happened, it's this new thing. It's a global pandemic. Now, regardless about everybody has their different perspective on how, you know, right. the, the, the degree to which we should fear it or should or should not fear it. But the reality is it was a new thing. And you said people's businesses are crumpling. So change is always scary. Why is change scary? Because it's like that saying goes, the, the, the devil that's known is greater than the devil that isn't, right? Because if I don't know something, that change is scary. What's on the other side is scary because I don't know. The unknown is inevitably scary because the unknown presents a risk. So our brains are still designed like cavemen and cavewomen. We're still designed in that archaic world where stressors were life-threatening. Now, we don't necessarily have, well, COVID aside, we generally speaking, we don't have to worry about life or death on a daily scenario, but our brain is still designed for that archaic world. So we create stressors and brain is constantly responding to fear. Now, the problem that happens with it is because fear is so demonized. 
we always like, I, I can't do it. I mean, the amount of times I hear people say, be fearless, don't be scared. Or people will say things like in the spiritual circles or in the personal development, they'll say it all the time. There's two ways to operate fear and love. And that's fucking bullshit. Like fear is not the antithesis of love. Fear is a beautiful expression of love. Like I'm scared of something. I'm scared of losing people I love. I'm scared of my own life. Like I'm scared of losing my own life. And at one point I wasn't. When I went to Iraq, I didn't give a shit if I die. Mm. I was ready to die. Yeah. So I was not scared of death, but today I am terrified of death because I love my life a lot more. So fear is this beautiful expression of love if you view it as such. So the demonization of fear has caused fear to become a real problem. If instead we accept it, it's there. It's a response to some unknown. Great, it's there. What do I do with it? And even when it comes to that, like there are no irrational fears. People will say there's irrational fears and there's somehow quote unquote rational fears. But the reality is the subconscious doesn't have the ability to be rational or irrational. It just is. We don't control what happens in our subconscious. Just like I can't consider the liver rational or irrational. It just is. It does what it does. The same way the subconscious is beyond our realm of control. Now, in time, through conscious awareness and energy and rebuilding patterns, we can change how the subconscious re responds to external stimuli. Like today, if I get on a Ferris wheel, I'm not scared anymore. <laughs> but I, So I've changed that by activating and by taking on new patterns. But the subconscious does what it does. Like if somebody come in, comes into this room right now with a gun, I'm not going to choose to feel fear. Is that an irrational or a rational response? It's a response. It's my subconscious saying, this thing could kill you. So the first thing we got to do as a society, as an individual is stop demonizing it because then we can accept it and say, look, it's just there. Dude, I get scared. Sometimes this, this happened fairly recently. I live in a very safe place in New Jersey. I was sitting alone in my house and suddenly this overwhelming fear took over me. And I'm like, dude, I do the most ridiculous, dangerous things that could literally kill me. Here I am sitting alone in my house in New Jersey and I've gotten scared. But I don't care when that shows up. Like it, it doesn't phase me anymore. You know, for a long time, I would judge it. What's wrong with you? Like, why are you being scared? Stop being a piece of shit. You know, but now it's like, oh, it's there. Cool. Let me let me dig a little deeper into it. Mm. What's what's why is it showing up? What's what's it there for? Right. What's it leading me to? What can I do with it? Right. So understanding that it's just a human response, as is everything, as is guilt, as is sadness, as is uh, anger. Like, there's no bad emotions. There's no good emotions. There's only emotions. And it's up to us to constantly decide what we do with them. Yeah, and, and I think it's so interesting when you were mentioning about the, like, removing the demonization of fear. And I have always, and, and I even sometimes have gone through this too, right? Where, like, you, you're sitting in your house and you're perfectly safe. And then all of a sudden you're, like, scared of shit. And you're like, I have no idea why. I have no idea why I'm scared. Katie, have you have you yeah. had that in your experience where you're just like completely safe and then all of a sudden you're just like, why am I so scared right now? Well, that's the power of thoughts in our narratives, right? Like we get to choose what we believe in and what we don't believe in. And sometimes these things just show up out of nowhere based on the frequency, which is just an emotion. Emotions have frequency. And based on that state that we're in are the thoughts that we attract and then therefore the beliefs that we opt into and perceive as reality. So actually, I'm absolutely fascinated by how you start to rebuild your patterns. You mentioned that before. And as an ontological coach that works with people um, on three different levels, moods and emotions, their language and their body language, all built on a foundation of their history, their culture, and their past experiences. I'm curious how you would recommend someone to start to rewrite that narrative so that they interpret the fear, the, the evidence appearing real, the false evidence of being mm -hmm. real to be able to write a new narrative around that because a lot of people mm -hmm. feel that and they're so like their body shut down and they're like fear stimulus go away bye like i'm shutting I down i love that yeah. yeah if you could walk us through just like a step by step on how you did that that would be awesome sure yeah so you know on the on the the one thing to qualify like before i sort of have a step by step is the process is relentless you have to be absolutely constant and like aware and relentless about what's happening in your inner dialogue and because your brain's always going to retreat to past patterns, like the greatest predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And also the brain is naturally lazy. Dr. Daniel Kahneman, he wrote this great book, Thinking Fast and Slow. He says, laziness is built deep into our nature. So we're going to retreat to the laziest and easiest course of action. And our external world, especially today's environment, feeds into that. So what's important to remember is that we are combating forces that are not conducive to us seeking out suffering, right? Like we are not, we're not designed our brain as well as an environment that doesn't feed into that. Everything in the environment is constantly looking for the next easiest thing to make our lives easier. But as we know, easier is not better. In fact, and that's why the, the sort of the growing malaise of the human condition is clear evidence of that fact, right? So just to qualify that the process is relentless. You have to constantly become aware of what's happening in your mind and your thought patterns. 
Now, there is like a five-step thing that I have. Uh, I talk about that in, in Fearvana as well. So I'll break that down a little bit, but in terms of like building new narratives in, when, it, when fear shows up, and then I'll talk about a few other things that I do now, especially as well. So this five-step process is L-M-N-O-P. And this is a really powerful way when you are in that state, that emotion. So the first L is label. label. Just label the emotion. And neuroscience has actually shown that if you label the emotion, it reduces activity in the emotional parts of your brain and increases activity in the part of your brain related to focus and awareness. So by doing that, you're basically creating that space between the subconscious and the conscious. So you're not becoming your emotion, which is a lot of, a lot of us do that, right? We mm. feel sad. We become that. We identify it with this is who I am. This is like my being, instead of saying, oh, my brain's going through this state, but that's not me, right? So we just label it. Second part of the L is language. You mentioned physiology. You should shift your body language. Sit up tall, feel powerful, whatever you got to do to shift your body language into one that makes you feel more confident. So M is meaning. What is the meaning you have attributed to the, to the event that's led to the emotion, as well as the meaning you are attributing to the emotion? As I said, right, we judge our emotions. So when I feel fear, people will say, I'm weak. What's wrong with me? Why am I feeling fear? So we've attributed a meaning to that emotion as well as to some event that's led to that emotion. Like I worked with this one client who used to get scared every time he would sit down to write because the meaning he had created is that nobody would want to read his writing. People would think it's garbage. And God knows I went through that writing a book on fear. I was terrified that people would hate it and all that kind of thing, right? So that was a meaning I had created. The N is it's not me. So this part I think is the really core part here is where you are disidentifying with the thought and the emotion. You're saying, this is not me. This is not who I am. This is just my brain going through a pattern. It's done this before. I don't control it. So it's just a pattern beyond my control. And like this, this part here really is, is essential is to recognize that we are not our thoughts. We are not our feelings. We are not our experiences. We are the thinker of our thoughts, the feeler of our feelings and the experiencer of our experiences. This is so important because there is a space between what shows up and who we choose to be outside of that space, mm. what actions we take. And that space will shape your actions and ultimately your destiny. So that's the end part. And the O is you opt for a new meaning. So this is when you're shifting your relationship to the things that are happening to the events. But more importantly, I would argue to the emotion itself that you're saying, you know what, just because I'm feeling fear, it doesn't mean I'm weak. It doesn't mean I'm worthless. You're shifting the meaning you are assigned. Even if you don't at the core of your soul believe it yet, you're just consciously opting for a new meaning. In time, it'll become more subconscious. And then the final part is the P, purpose and preemptive strike. So the purpose part is where you are taking some new action. So whenever you're in the state of this fear, so I mentioned this client who would get like anxiety every time he would sit down to write, he would retreat and go watch TV. And as neuroscientists say, neurons that fire together, wire together, meaning patterns of behavior form. Every time, basically at the simplistic level, his brain had said, you know, anxiety, computer equals anxiety equals retreat equals watch TV, right? So we needed to shift that pattern. So even if it meant sitting there writing for two minutes, something in line with that higher purpose, some new action, and in time that two minutes can become five minutes and 10 minutes and 20 minutes and so on and so forth, but we're building a new pattern. And the second part of the P is what I call preemptive strikes. So we're preemptively preparing for obstacles we know will show up. In this case, every time he sat down to write, he would know this would show up. So he would preemptively prepare for it. A great way to do it, and research has shown that this is a, like they act, this will actually help you triple your odds of success in this. They did this research with elderly patients who are struggling with, they had just gone through hip and knee replacement surgery. And they asked them to write down in detail when they would do things like taking a shower, going for a walk. And they would write down at 5 p.m., I'm going to go for a walk. It'll be five minutes, whatever. But they planned out in detail. They preemptively prepared for the obstacle of pain. And by doing so, those who actually did that, who wrote it down, they recovered three times faster. So you're preemptively preparing. Okay, if every time I go through X obstacle, do this, I'm going to go through that pain. Let me be ready for it. And here's how I'm going to navigate it. So this five-step process, every step kind of backed by neuro, neuroscience and research, is really effective to deal with in the moment of shifting your relationship to those emotions. And then the other part is just constantly how you talk to yourself. I mean, I go through moments now, like I'm always, because you, as you all know, I'm skiing out for five, five hours a day, hiking for five hours a day, or like right when COVID happened, I ran, I did a 50 mile run around a cul-de-sac, as you know, Mike. And so it was just brutal psychological torture, right? Going all night around this cul-de-sac. And like just a thousand loops. It was like point zero. That was so funny. That was so funny when you were like telling me you were doing that. I remember texting you. I just I remember texting you and being like, "What are you doing again?" You're like, ah, "I'm just gonna like run around my cul-de-sac." You know, it's like I'm doing fifty miles. I'm like fifty miles. Like I do five miles, and I'm like, "Woo, workout!" That was great. It was yeah. I mean, you're fifty. 50 miles around the cul-de-sac. So beyond the physical suffering, there was the psychological one of just going around that damn loop over and over again. Yeah. Right? And the reason I bring that up is like the self-dialogue in those moments. I remember when 
when I was maybe five, six hours in and I wasn't feeling pain. I was literally calling forth pain. I was going out. I mean, I look like a nut job if anybody was like my neighbors are out there looking at who's this crazy dude running around. But I'm like, fucking bring it. Like I'm literally <laughs> saying, I'm like, I'm praying for the devil. This is how I view, I talk to myself. Like I want the devil himself to rise out of hell to commit himself to destroy my soul. Like I want every bit of pain the devil could possibly bring on me because I'm going to look that motherfucker in the eye and bury him in his own blood. That's right. So when you shift your relationship to the pain, it becomes something beautiful. And when the pain hit, I was like, fucking bring it, bring on more of it. Nothing's going to break me. And my dialogue shifts and through in time. Now it's like, it shifted my being. It shifted who I am by having that. And then fundamentally, the greatest way to change is to take action. Like you can sit here, listen to me, run my mouth, read a book, but you have to take action. You have to go into those spaces of the suck. You have to go to war with yourself. Put yourself in those spaces where one party you wants to quit, wants to die even, and then the other wants to fight. When you put yourself in those spaces, that's when you will discover something new. But you have to go there. And that space is horribly uncomfortable, which is why it, like, it feels more comfortable to go to a freaking personal yeah. development seminar where I feel good, everybody's rah-rah, cheering. And I'm, look, I'm not knocking all that. There has value. But what the, real, the, the real place of value is in the suck. It's in the battlefield of life. And you've got to go into those fucking spaces if you want to find something new. Hell yeah. Dude, that was that was amazing. And I couldn't agree with you more in the sense of shifting, like putting yourself in a position where like those, those times where you have to like pull the energy, the last bit of fuel that you have from like deep within you to get through a hard workout or, you know, you're on the, you're on a 13 hour deadline in hour 12s here and you like still are not done. It's like those, it's the (laughs) precipice of those moments. Right. And I want to ask you the second part of the question. This is just more for me to and, and our audience to really just get this personal narrative, um, just to get the personal narrative of for you. I want to know what it's like for you when you're scared. So what comes up for you and what are the things, because I, again, I think, you know, going toe to toe with the devil doing 50 miles around a cul-de-sac is not how I would want to bring it. Like, that's just me. I would like to have my chances, my AO to be at my area of operation to be a little bit wider, probably, maybe not. But I, but I think it's really important because I think when we were talking about fear in general and just being such a subjective thing, like some people are scared of, of very tiny things, you know, elephants are scared of mice, right? And then you're like, why? And then there's people who are really scared mm-hmm. of heights and, you know, they're thousands of feet up mm-hmm. rightfully. So I think I actually have a little bit of that, a little bit like fear of heights. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's for me, but I stand next to somebody else and they're like, oh, this isn't a big deal. We're like thousands of feet up. And I'm like, hold the railing. Like, oh my God. Right. <laughs> but, but the, the question I want to pose to you is, is like, what is fear like for you on an emotional level? And what are some of the things that you do specifically to keep yourself in a container as, as Katie likes to refer to on the show as in a container of being able to harness and control that fear you know, without letting your emotional or not letting that fear just overtake you from being in the midst of the suck. Mm-hmm. I hope that uh, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. It, it does cool. make sense. So at this point in my life now, I'm very comfortable with it. So when it shows up, like it's, it's no big deal. I don't judge it. I don't care. Like as an example. So just to, last week I went for this hike and at the summit, at the top of the hike, there was this little tower it was maybe three stories, not a huge tower, but a little tower and you could climb. And if you got to the top of the tower, there's like, you could see over the trees. The views were stunning. You might've seen it and I shared it on Instagram. And I was nervous climbing that tower. It was like three stories. And like, I've done a lot of crazy things <laughs> that why would you be a little nervous climbing the tower? And after, after coming back, I was talking to my friend about it and I told him, I was like, I was, I was really nervous walking up, like just seeing the slight drop and it wasn't even a huge drop. So I, I can relate to the fear of heights. I was scared. But at this point I'm like, okay, you're scared. Cool. <laughs> like I, and I, so as a result, I'm a little bit more careful. The, the tower had some ice on it. So I'm very comfortable and I don't beat myself up. Like a long time ago, I would have been like, dude, stop being a bitch. Like, why are you, you know, like I, you're talking to myself that way, like beating myself up for feeling that fear, you know, because I've done so much or whatever it may be because I've confronted fear in all these other ways. I would, I would judge it. And that's the problem. So like I worked with one other guy, he, he was going to Iceland for a vacation and it wasn't some extreme in nature, just a vacation in Reykjavik and kind of hanging out, staying in hotels. And he was really scared. It was the first time he was going on a vacation on his own and working with me. He was saying like, you know, you've done all these things. You've climbed mountains in the Himalayas. You've done all these cave, cave diving, this and other thing. What's wrong with me? Why am I scared just going to Iceland on my own? And that was the problem. It wasn't the fear. He, he didn't have the level of references that I've built up. You, you change your relationship to fear by doing things that are scary and the references change. 
So only reason I've gotten here is because I've taken, I've systematically worked through risk. I've taken one step at a time moving forward in that risk. As I said, I used to be scared of everything. So I wasn't born fearless or anything like that. I was scared of Ferris wheels. So stepping into that, now I've built myself into a position where traveling to Iceland on my own wouldn't scare me. He didn't have those references. It doesn't mean he was weaker or braver or anything. His brain had a set of references that were different than mine. So his brain responded with fear to going to Iceland on his own. Mine would not. And the reality is it takes courage for him to go to Iceland on his own. It wouldn't take courage for me to do it because there's fear. Courage can only exist if there is fear. And the fear just shows up when it shows up, depending on what we've done in the past. So for me now, you know, like, I've confronted heights, but it still kind of scares me. Dude, when I'm when I'm thinking about climbing Denali, there's you get to these ridge lines where these drop-offs on both edges. I'm terrified of the prospect of that, man. I remember doing solo <laughs> mountain in Bolivia. I'm just like this- watching you right now. Like, and I'm like, oh no, I don't want to do that. I was like, don't do <laughs> stop talking, actually. It's freaking terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. So I am terrified, but I seek it. And a great way when you're in it is just when you're fully present. Like one of the reasons why I do these things is it especially once you've developed that sort of comfort zone with it, once you've pushed yourself and kept going, Mm. there is this purity to it that is so all-consuming. Like when you're in that moment, you have nowhere else to be. You can't be thinking about something else. You can't be thinking about back home. And it is so all-consuming. It's so pure. You are one with yourself, one with the universe, one with the earth. And there is a deep level of spiritual awakening that happens in those moments but you have to that's why i call it fear of honor it's like the fear is the access point to nirvana right you have to go into those spaces to find bliss to find enlightenment and that's like the 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 pain of it the struggle of it it's it teaches you self-transcendence and it teaches you to transcend the emotion to be with all of the experience that is and to become so present in all of it and so for me like suffering is a training ground for self-transcendence and i think if there's one thing life is all about it's self-transcendence it's a transcendent self not just for others but for your own self for your future self for your better self for your higher self and transcending all your stuff those thoughts those feelings the the demons that aren't serving you and transcending it for something greater mm. katie you seem like you have something you just like are just itching to ask actually i just like saw your face go for it i love your concept of transmuting fear into the area of growth i think that's absolutely brilliant and as someone who really also loves outdoor adventure like i was a collegiate athlete division one athlete i feel very comfortable pushing myself in the outdoors i constantly am seeking flow state like physical pain is my friend and there are things that that as a human being that scare the shit out of me And so I'm curious to see how it seems like your area of comfort, even though it isn't a comfortable experience physically, seems to be athletic prowess in the outdoors, like big adventure. And so what is something you're working through that scares the shit out of you as like a human being not in the outdoors? And how are you approaching that? So uh, what terrifies me in the not in the outdoors in the more quote unquote normal circumstances is like the prospect of dating or meeting somebody again, you know, like so I was married for eight years, went through a divorce a few years ago now and, uh, getting into a relationship like that terrifies me just the whole, just the whole gamut of everything involved in that, you know? Uh, so that's, that's really scary. <laughs> more normal life stuff scares me more. She set you up on that <laughs> one. I was going to cheat it off. <laughs> well, but it's interesting, right? Because Mike and I have a whole podcast episode on limiting beliefs. And one of the core limiting yeah. beliefs is trust, trusting self, trusting God, trusting others, mm-hmm. but having that faith that it'll be okay. And so the reason why I kind of led you to this question is because a lot of those things like seem like they're in your control. Like you ski for freaking five hours you're gonna do some epic adventures this year totally great point yeah like because yeah in the physical suffering in fact my other friend who's an endurance athlete we were talking about this he came to visit we were hiking and stuff we were like if only you could suffer your way through the result like in dating as we could in outdoor sports we would crush it but (laughs) i try i mean your point is totally valid in like skiing or or like running if like when I did the 24 hour run or something like I have to just suffer and I will get to the other end, right? No matter it's my, that, that, that is under my control in this area. It requires an act of surrender. And there's, that's the beauty of it. Like, that's why it's so uncomfortable is because it pushes me out of the realm of control and it requires, 
you mentioned like faith. It requires faith. It requires surrender. And that's its own kind of discomfort. So that's without a doubt why it's scary and without a doubt why like I can easily procrastinate on that. I'll, and I'll go suffer. Like I'll suffer for t- eight hours skiing. And I'll be like, yeah, but, but I still did something, right? I still suffered, but I'm still Yeah, but I'm really procrastinating on the other thing that I kind of want to do as well or kind of know I should in my narrative of who I want to be. But yeah, surrender is scary. It's a different kind of scary. All the single ladies out there. No, I'm just kidding. We weren't gonna. We're not gonna do it. We're not gonna do an ad for action. <laughs> but you can find him on Instagram at Fearvana. Thanks, brother. No, but go ahead. Sorry, go for it, Katie. I'm curious to see if those fears show up differently in your body, like somatically, like if where they show up, what the sensation is like between the fear of dating and the fear of climbing Denali. You know, uh, great question. I think that, like, if I if I look at it and analyze it. I think that there, um, I, I guess at this point, I'm self-aware enough to know what the fear is. Like to your point about the surrender, the faith, I, I and this is again through training. It's not just happened, right? Really constantly practicing that self-awareness uh, of what the obstacle, or at least I perceive in my own mind. And so I think they show up very similar way, but it's a fear. It's it's a one kind of fear that I'm more comfortable in. So I actually call this meta suffering. So there's the suffering that is you're comfortable, like running marathons and skiing seven hours. It's not easy. It's suffering, but it's a comfortable suffering. Dating is uh, uncomfortable. Or even, for example, like working on my business, or like building the business, or even when I was writing a book. Like I used to avoid. I used to procrastinate on writing by going running a marathon. Because running a marathon was, again, not easy, but it's a comfortable suffering. So meta-suffering is a term that I use to define, like, the the discomfort that adds discomfort onto the discomfort, right? Like, it's suffering onto the layer of suffering. So it's a different kind of fear in that it's it's an uncomfortable discomfort, if that makes sense. It's not a comfortable discomfort. And so the, and then that's like a known, known. Exactly. Exactly. So like going into those spaces is where the next level of growth happens, which is why I do things in very different contexts of seeking suffering, like spending seven days in darkness or writing a book or doing these other things, which push me in very different ways than the comfortable suffering. And uh, ultimately again, gain new insights from that. So I think the fear shows up similarly, but it's just the, the nature of the, or the, the context that creates the fear is different because of where my own comfort zone lies. Right. And we all, again, have our own different zones of comfort, different, even within the discomfort and, um, and mine lies more in that physical suffering. So this realm is far scarier to me, but I know other friends of mine that like love dating. They're very comfortable on it, but they would never do 50 miles around a cul-de-sac or anything, right? So we all have our uh, zones of discomfort and comfort, right? I always say my favorite flavor of suffering. Yeah, I like that. Exactly. Uh, that's good, yeah. <laughs> I like that. I'm also curious, so something I've been working on for myself is learning how to tune into my intuition versus my fear mm. voice because sometimes they sound the same and I I mm. love pushing the bounds of my comfort zone. I'm like you, like, I'm a uncomfort zone junkie. Yeah. And there are times when my fear shows up where it's telling me that, oh, actually this is a stimulus that may cause harm and not in a good way. And this is a stimulus that may cause harm, but in a discomfort uh, pro growth way. Yeah. What does intuition mean to you and how do you tune into that to inform where you're going to lean into this discomfort and when you're going to peel back? I think a light, like anything, it requires training. You got to train yourself to that. That's why stillness is so important. You got to take that time to be still within to hear what's going on within, whether it be in your mind, in your heart, whatever you want to call it. You have to take that time to become more self-aware of the voice in your head in and how it's shaping you. Because like you said, there's the fear that can lead to growth and there's the fear that this is really stupid. This could kill you. And I like navigate that all the time. Like there's a... Fu- <laughs> Although it sounds like I do really stupid things arbitrarily, I definitely have very <laughs> conscious levels of risk that I engage in. Like just the other day I was skiing with my polk and it was like a pretty heavy polk. And there was a part where I'm not the best cross-country skier where there was a huge drop-off like right here. And if that polk had fallen, I, it would have taken me down with it. would have taken me down with it, right? So I was like, all right, this is this is like a level of fear that I'm just not ready to engage it yet. So I turned around and went a different way. You know what I mean? So and right, wrong, good, bad. Like people might say, oh, that was weak. I don't care. Like that was to me a level of risk that I just didn't take. And even now, like I don't, I, I used to rock climb without rope. I would climb 50, 60, 100 foot rock walls without rope. The level of risk in that is way too high for me. So I don't do it anymore. That's like, now I can't choose through self-awareness. I choose my level of risk that I want to engage in, right? So I think to train that intuition, to train that inner voice, it, it's really important to practice being still, 
letting it guide you, see, you know, push the edge in certain ways and see, okay, you know, I thought this, I took this action and this kind of worked out, this didn't. So you have to hear it and then act on it and then see, you know, like, again, it's kind of coming back to stretching and reflecting. Oh, that, that worked, that didn't, you know? So, and, but it is, it is hard sometimes because you can have that intuition guide you and then, and, and you don't know where it's like, what that voice is. Is it, are you listening to yourself the right way? Is this from some coming from a different place? You know? So it, it is, it's not easy, but I just think that the more you train in stillness, the more you can get comfortable in recognizing what's happening within. But stillness is, I would like, I think it's one of the biggest fears people have. It's not a fear that I think, like, if you ask somebody, what are you scared of? I don't think anybody would say consciously stillness, but it is without a doubt, in my experience from myself and engaging with many other people, it is a huge fear we have. Mm. So we are doing everything. And I think Carl Jung said it beautifully. He said, people will do anything, no matter how absurd, to avoid confronting their own soul. Mm -hmm. And like, we can see that in today's world, right? We do everything to distract ourselves. And it is Yeah, why do you think there's so much addiction to drugs, to booze, to sex? to to athleticism to um yeah pushing the boundaries of our human experience so that we don't have to be with what is yeah and i'm not sure when the hell that became so scary but that's something i work with with my clients about it's just like finding core finding stillness and finding alignment and learning how to be with that self and like some days it's easy and some days even for someone who's done a lot of work on herself like it's hard as shit yeah it is. It yeah. And, and I think both of you guys have really brought up some super interesting points about how, you know, how it's so hard to just face oneself, especially now. And I think we were talking a little bit about, you know, like the, the, the Mark Manson thing. He actually posted on Instagram this morning and it's, I, I believe it's called bifaural attention. And it's like literally talking about the removal of the middle ground of attention spans in our society. And I almost feel like using that concept and applying it to the self, right? Where like everybody else is so focused on giving attention elsewhere instead of like looking inward and examining themselves mm-hmm. and saying like, oh, I would much rather watch eight seasons of Game of Thrones yeah. or I would much rather like watch my friend's videos like cooking soup on <laughs> stories, right? Or I would much rather do this than to actually Did sit you watch my video last night, Mike? Night, yeah, did you watch that? Yeah. <laughs> we'll, not, I'm, we'll not dime anybody out on this. No, I'm just kidding. It was a great video. I really enjoyed it. No, but the point is, is like, I think people will do anything they can to divert attention into, uh, into not looking at themselves and not giving that type of reflection. And I think for the sake of this episode, I wanted to get into this point, actually, because we got about a couple minutes left. And I don't want to rush the story, but I want to give you the space to be able to tell this because Katie hasn't heard the story. I've heard it a couple of times, and it's probably one of my favorite experiences that you've shared with me. Throughout this episode, you've talked about the dark room. And I think, and I would probably say the majority of people out there that are listening to the show, I they were probably like, what the fuck is a dark room? First of all, what's a dark room? And no, it's not something that you develop photos in. It is it is not that at all. But I would love for you to share what is a dark room? What prompted you to go into it? And exactly what came yeah. up in this experience? And and maybe share like a lesson or two that with our sure. audience about, you know, what transpired out of that. And I actually think you've inspired me to even like I'm getting closer and closer to saying like, man, I should go dabble in that and see, see what's up, you know? So yeah. the stage is yours, my friend. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And I think by the way, everybody should do a darkness retreat. It is tremendously mm. powerful, but <laughs> so as far as what drove me to it. So after I went through that divorce, I ended up breaking my sobriety. And as you can probably gather from our conversation so far, when I do anything, I do hard. So when I broke, I broke hard, as I think you know, Mike. I mean, I got to a point, man, I was drinking like a liter of vodka a day. Mm. I would just drink till I pass out, wake up, drink. I mean, I remember throwing up in the toilet and as soon as I'm done, picking up a bottle and drinking again. And obviously, I did not like that part of myself. This was post-Fearvana, but you know, I obviously didn't respond the best way to that new struggle that came my way of the divorce. So I knew there was something missing here and I needed to go find some answers. So I needed to go look somewhere where I hadn't looked before, right? And so that's why I chose stillness instead of, let's say, going back to just do a run or something. And I originally was going to go to a silent retreat. Like, have you heard of those Vipassanas? Yeah, yep. Those 10 yeah. day silent. Yeah, those are kind of more like more popular. And so that's what I was going to do because I didn't know darkness retreats existed. But when I was doing some research online, I stumbled into the concept of a darkness retreat. And obviously me being me, I just decided to pursue the most extreme possible path <laughs> to stillness that I could find. So darkness retreat is 24-7 pitch darkness, cannot see your hand in front of you darkness. So you're just sitting still in darkness. And I did it for seven days. So 24 hours a day, seven days, you're in complete darkness. 
And the reason what drew me to it beyond just sort of seeking the edges uh, in every context was unlike a silent retreat, in the darkness, you're shutting off one of the primary ways in which we engage with the world, our visual sense. So by doing so, you have nowhere external to go. Like right now, I can look at that wall and say that is a wall. And by doing so, my mind is is no longer within because I have somewhere else to go, right? That's outside. In darkness, you don't have that. So you are forced to go within. Now, that is a tremendously demanding journey. As you can imagine, sitting still in darkness, you have nothing to do, nowhere to go, a tiny little room, right? So I was journaling in the dark as well. Like I had a little journal and I would kind of have a ruler, right? And then, you know, move the ruler down. And the stuff that showed up, man, it was it was one of the most profound experiences of my life. Like I would 100% do it again. I got a lot from it in terms of like answers that sat, I'm not saying these answers are right. These are answers that satisfied me in terms of the nature of God. What is the meaning of life? Why are we here? What does enlightenment mean? These very existential questions about our place on this planet. But in terms of like a personal struggle, what showed up a lot was, and perhaps what drove me to the darkness in this other way as well, in terms of like what, not just the darkness of the retreat, but drove me to drinking again after my divorce. You know, I had, I've struggled with the guilt of feeling happy. Like I've seen a lot of pain and suffering in the world beyond being in a war zone. I've worked with former child soldiers. I've worked with survivors of sex trafficking. I've volunteered in leper colonies. I've, you know, I've, I've been in places of extreme poverty. And when I see this, I've always struggled. Like, why do I get to be happy? Why do I get to be Right now, as you and as three of us are having this conversation, there's someone in a deep hell on earth going through absolute suffering and pain that most of us can never even fathom, right? And why do I get to be happy in that? What what was what I mean? Because I was lucky when where I was born. I was lucky where I was born, so I get somehow get much more privileges than most. And so I've struggled with that. And a lot of what showed up in the darkness for me was that stuff and processing in that and like and recognizing that look me being happy is not going to change the fact that others are suffering but if anything it's only going to be service fuel for me to do the work and the one of the big reasons i was driving back to drinking and stuff because i was miserable man like i was still struggling mm-hmm. if you're never happy inevitably you're going to look for an escape to life like it's painful if, you know like now i do painful things but there's joy in that right it's a very different level of consciousness so that was one of the among many things that helped me kind of process that and and be with myself through that uh to recognize what was showing up within like if there was one key word that showed up in my darkness retreat like to to define it was self-transcendence which is a word i used earlier i wrote that like there was pepper throughout my darkness journal was that's what it's about like self-transcendence you know but i would say the most powerful part of the darkness retreat for sure was when i came out after coming out of the darkness the first time i saw the light first time seeing the light after seven days in dark it's no words can truly describe how I saw the world in those moments. But I remember like I was tearing up with the profundity of that experience. And I remember thinking that I wish I could look at the world every day through these eyes. And obviously it, you can't, it changes. But the second, uh, um, the second thought that showed up in that moment was this deep sense of gratitude for every bit of pain and suffering I've ever gone through in my life because in, and, and I kind of knew this at the time, but it's a different between kind of rationally processing something and knowing it from the core of your soul. But in that moment, in a very visceral way, I came to understand that you cannot truly understand the light. You cannot truly know the light unless you have been in the dark. The only way I could mm, see the light that good, way man. that I saw it was because I spent seven days in darkness. And so you have to go or like, dude, Carl Jung puts it beautifully. I quote him a lot because he's, he's, he's my favorite psychologist. He says, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. Mm. We got to go into those dark spaces. So for me, it was just a really profound realization that, I mean, among many things, but to to understand the power of the dark, to give us clarity on what the light truly is. Yeah. I love that. I always say contrast is the greatest teacher. I love that. 100%. Like, because life, and, and Mark Manson was mentioned before, and... Um, the subtle art of not giving a fuck is a book that vastly changed my life. And it reminds mm-hmm. me of what you teach actually, which is uh, life isn't about not having struggles. It's not about having an easy path. It's not about just like living in sheer bliss or um, simplicity. It's about deriving happiness that comes from solving our problems. And if you want to have a life that you want, choose your fucking problems, choose the thing that you want to fight for. And so when I was reading your website and getting to know you, it just like, it hit me with such resonance in the core because that's how I live my life. And I love that. That's what you stand for. I love that. Yeah. I always like to say that if you don't seek out a worthy struggle, struggle will find you anyway. You ultimately, <laughs> ultimately choose. Might as well yeah. be proactive, right? Exactly. Choose what you want to fight for. <laughs> Which struggle are you willing to endure? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think on that note, it's time for us to end this episode. But before we do, Katie and I have a little tradition where we always try to wrap up the episode with one thing that we learned that we can share with the audience from this. So actually, since you are a guest from this conversation, what do you think is one thing that you learned in just outside of this conversation or actually outside of this conversation and in your life uh, that you could share with people about becoming the author of their life or rewriting their narratives? Is there a piece of advice that you could share with them on taking that first step? Uh, get extremely clear on what you stand for and who, like what your, what your, what is your philosophy on life? What is your mission? What is your vision? What are your values? Get, start getting clear on extre- extremely clear on what you stand for and who you want to be that will help you start writing the narrative because that, that becomes like your North Star. So for example, my philosophy is the path to inner peace is the pursuit of a worthy inner war. That's my philosophy statement. That's my philosophy. That's my North Star. That's my guiding compass. So I'm always looking for that inner war. So I would say to re- rewrite the narrative, get clear on who you want to create. Who do, like, what's the, what's the most legendary, epic, highest version of you? And what does that person stand for? Because remember, there's no self to find. There's only a self to create, right? So get clear on the philosophy that you want to abide by, the mission you want to abide by, and use that to start creating that self every single day. Damn, that's good. One of my favorite quotes is become who you are. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. I would say something you said was uh, spaces of the suck. My takeaway is become intimate with the spaces of the suck and find the learning and the light in those to be able to keep pushing your boundaries of what's possible. And not to avoid them, not to resist them, because what we resist persists, mm-hmm. but learn how to be with that without staying stagnant in that sort of energy. Oh, that's good. God, you guys took my, those were the two I was thinking exactly that I wanted this. No, I'm just kidding. No, those were great. <laughs> those were, only those, two good those ideas were, here, folks. Yeah, I know. The only ideas I had. Um, I would probably say make fear your friend. Just recognize it's in the room with you. It's not about removing it. It's about recognizing it, becoming friends with it. And uh, knowing that it, you got to have a healthy relationship with it, but don't let it, don't let it overcome you, but don't push it away. Find a way for you to use it. So that's what I took away. Now, before we wrap up, Akshay, where can people find you? Where can people buy your book? Give me all the details on who you are, where you're, where you're at so we can find you. Yeah. You find me at fearvana.com. Instagram is the social media platform I use the most at fearvana. And uh, the book is on Amazon in Kindle, Audible, and paperback. And 100% of the profits of the book go to charity. So we support many worthy causes like survivors of sex trafficking and former child soldiers. So uh, that's always appreciated because the profits in the book does some good work. So yeah, that's where you can find me. Awesome. All right. Well, Akshay, my brother, thank you, man, for just spending time with us today, for sharing your story. And this was great. I feel like I always learn something new from you. And so I'm I'm honored to have have you in my life, dude. And you know, do life with you, man. So rock solid. And Katie, as always, amazing questions. Thank you for being a great co-host. And once again, I'm Mike Ligori. I'm Katie D'Andrea. And we will see you next week.